A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. It comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. If you listen to CanadaLand, you probably don't mind loud men with strong opinions. Canada Land has Jesse Brown. At Canada's National Observer, we have our lead columnist, Max Fawcett. And now, he has a podcast. I'm frustrated by the relentless partisanship and the refusal to discuss things in good faith. In other words, I'm maxed out. You probably are too. That's why, in this podcast, I'm going to be inviting people to talk with me about my columns and ideas. Even people who want to contradict me. Maxed out. In an age of polarization, one man tried to have a reasonable conversation. Sometimes it works. That's Maxed Out, a bi-weekly podcast which is part of Podcast Tuesdays at Canada's National Observer. Find us on iTunes and wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Canada Land Back is a co-production between Canada's National Observer and Canada Land. I'm Karen Pugliese, host and producer of this season of Canada Land Back, and I welcome you to our final show this season. As we were recording this last episode, Mi'kmaq journalist and professor Trina Roach commented that First Nations people experience time differently it's not a linear projection. It's more like the past, present, and future are layered upon us all at once. And that's a good frame for the story I want to tell you now. In January 2020, I'd left my job at APTN. I found myself in Boston on a Neiman Fellowship. I was pouring over truth commissions, South Africa, Rwanda, Argentina, 
I'd been thinking about what our Truth Commission had said about the importance of the role media should play in reconciliation. I was searching for any way forward that we could replicate in Canada. On breaks from those readings, I found myself swiping through the news on my iPhone, following the story of the hereditary chiefs of Wet'suwet'en, who had just delivered an eviction notice to the coastal gas link, asking them to stop all work on their territory and leave. The standoff ensued polarized Canadians. Across Canada, supporters blocked roads and barricaded shipping ports and occupied the offices of elected officials. Among them were non-Indigenous supporters. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer called the land defenders criminals and advocated for Justin Trudeau to call in the police. It is almost 4,400 kilometers from the Wet'suwet'en territory to the protesters in Ontario. And the Prime Minister this morning spoke of dialogue with the people who are breaking the law. On day 16, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made a speech saying that all dialogue had failed. He didn't call in the police, but it seemed there was little left for police to do but to enforce Coastal Gas Link's injunction. The situation as it currently stands is unacceptable and untenable. Everyone involved is worried. Canadians have been patient. Our government has been patient. But it has been two weeks and the barricades need to come down now. For Indigenous people, events were following a historic pattern we know by rote. We've seen it before at Kanesatagi, Stony Point, Gustafson Lake, the Lobster Wars, more than a dozen other land and water actions. But something was different this time. I, I thought I sensed some mood. First, there were people holding signs saying reconciliation is dead. And that was the first time I asked that question that I asked at the beginning of this series. What if that's true? What if reconciliation is dead? Then what? Do things stay the way they are? Do we actually have a civil war? If reconciliation is truly dead, just what are the other options? As I watched events unfold, I also had this chilling sense that I couldn't shake. It was that if somebody got hurt this time, it would not be like before. And someone did get hurt, but not here, not in Canada, not an Indigenous man. It happened in Minneapolis when Mr. George Floyd, a black man who had allegedly bought cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill, was handcuffed and pinned to the ground by police. And an officer placed his knee on Floyd's neck, suffocating and murdering him, all horrifyingly captured on video. The Black Lives Matter movement raged for weeks in the U.S. When the movement crossed the border into Canada, there was an incredible act of allyship. The Black community made space for Indigenous voices. So this is all very non-linear. Now memories of land-back movements from Oka to Wet'suwet'en and the Truth and Reconciliation Commission are layered over George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. But it's not just me. You and I, all of us, we live here now. We haven't gotten to reconciliation but we did get a reckoning. An era of calling out and canceling, of reflection, of challenging the status quo and afflicting the comfortable. 
even in legacy newsrooms. How do we get to reconciliation? Oh, I have no answers now, not any more than I did in 2020 when I sat in the library poring over volumes of other TRC commissions. But if it starts with the truth, I know what to do with my journalism degree. Thank you for joining us this season. Let's wrap it up. Producer Kim Wheeler, thank you for joining me on our last episode. Uh, thanks so much, Karen, for having me on the airwaves with you. I can't believe that while this is our seventh episode and we're wrapping up season one, it's been a great journey being on this road with you and sharing these stories on on this podcast. We really got to know each other this season, and I'm so grateful for the chance to have worked with you. So originally on this episode, I kind of thought we might wrap up with uh, an interview with Murray Sinclair, but he has not been feeling well. And so we're going to do sort of a look back. And I guess I'm wondering what moments or, or what things this season you wanted to look back on, Kim? Oh, there's so many. And we're going to get to uh, some of the people who have contributed to this season. But I think one of my favorite moments was our very first interview with Elder Bonnie Brissett at Stony Point. I live in Winnipeg. I'd flown into Toronto. I rented a car. I picked you up, Karen, and we drove three hours out to Stony Point. And we weren't certain if we were actually going to gather tape on that trip or if we were just going to go in and introduce ourselves to the community. And, you know, I've always worked in print and radio and audio. So for me to go in as a journalist, you always get what you need. But for you, you've worked in television. So coming in with cameras is a different experience than just going into a community and not having to shove cameras in people's faces. So I thought that we would most likely get audio on that trip and get what we needed you had other ideas. So right away, we both had different ideas of how this was going to work. But as, I mean, when you're probably used to getting your way, but I got my way. <laughs> <laughs> and we recorded with Bonnie Brissette that day. And she told us this incredible story of when her family was moved from Stony Point to Kettle Point. And she described what that was like for her. And I just want to share this bit of tape with you and for the listeners. Dad was sitting on some big blocks from wood cutting. We asked him, what, what's, what's our doing? Our, where's our going with our house? And he said, well, we got to go live that kettle point down by Grandma Flora's until the war is over and then we'll come back. The government was taking their land. Everyone had to move. Well, it was gardening time because I know Dad had planted all the garden and Grandma Laura, who lived next door, had planted her garden. Everybody, because your life depended on them gardens, they planted them gardens. And uh, so it'd be about, uh, it must have been about end of April, first part of May, because that's when the frost is out the ground. And everybody put their gardens in down there. And the day uh, we left Sony Point, I didn't even know we were leaving because mom got us up and we're having a 
uh, we didn't have no bathroom. We had a big old laundry tub where she scrubbed her clothes in. And we're having a bath. When we got up that morning, when we had our bath and mom put our best dresses on us and put anklets on us. We didn't wear anklets unless you're going someplace. They said both of those ladies were trying to address what was happening with dignity. So this happened within her lifetime. This is someone who is still living today, who it could be, you know, your listeners, grandmother, your great-grandmother, who may still be alive. Within our lifetimes, that happened. It's not something that's way in the distant past. And I find that incredible. And I just always kind of think, what would happen if people came in to our neighborhoods and said, okay, that's it. You have to move to the other side of town. And they just like literally jacked up your house, (laughs) put it on a flatbed and drove it with all of your stuff inside without it being packed, without it being, you know, tied down or whatever. And just totally moved your life without your say. And that's exactly what happened to Bonnie. And, you know, that community is still living with it today. Coming up, Canada Land publisher Jesse Brown is going to reflect on that and reflect on the season. So um, let's see what the other contributors had to say. One of the stories I always wanted to do was to go back to one of the land actions that had happened 20 years ago and reconnect with the kids who were out in the front lines then just to see how they processed things and how they're doing. So I was very pleased to work again with Trina Roach, a journalist who I'd worked with at APTN, who back in 2001 covered the lobster wars at Burnt Church. She's a professor at King's University and she's joining us now. When you um, went back, Trina, to talk with Curtis, and we can hear in the doc you did for Canada Land Back what it was like for you. And you're there in the moment and, you know, like as journalists, we're recording and, and you're kind of on. But when you finished and you were, you were going home, what were you thinking about then? You know, what really stayed with me was how quickly... Like, you know, Curtis and I are talking about things that happened 20 years ago. And the part of the, the, the doc, the part of the interview that really stayed with me, and of course it made it in the doc, is that we're watching these old videos that he has on YouTube. And there's an RCMP boat. He's on a, he's a Mi'kmaq uh, fisheries ranger. And uh, he's talking about this incident where the RCMP are just like in pursuit. The first time we watched the video, he was kind of laughing And there was like, you could see, and he even said my adrenaline, this makes my adrenaline. It goes right up again. Um, Mm -hmm. Just watching the videos, it takes him right back. But then as quickly came a very emotional response. And I'm like 20 years later. And that was right there for other people. That's in the past. And I think we apply sometimes this Western way of thinking about time They want to settle things so they can move on. That's a very Western thing. We progress forward. We move forward. We put things in the past. But you could see talking to Curtis, it doesn't stay there, right? He Mm -hmm. lives with that now. For us, the ancestors are here. The future generations are right there. 
I just want to share the clip where Curtis and I are sitting and we're watching these videos of what happened that day on YouTube. And he just has a really visceral reaction to what we're watching. In our boat full of tear gas and almost passing out because I couldn't breathe. And the RCMP that arrested us, he had his, his, his knee on the back of my neck with his whole weight on the back of my neck. And I'm gasping for air, not just from the pressure of his weight on my neck, but also fighting to stay alive because of the tear gas that was in my lungs. And he had his tactical rifle pushing down on the temple of my head. And it's... yesterday every time I smell gasoline or an exhaust from a, like a snowmobile or an outboard motor it brings me right back to that day sometimes you get real tense for no reason you're just sitting there and you're holding your muscles and then your neck starts to get stiff in your back and, and that still happens like 20 years later it, it, it never goes away. I hear that moment in his voice. And there's some moments during the panel too where, where Kim and I started the panel. We did the first round of questions and I think I shouldn't have been surprised. I don't know if surprised is the right word, but I was affected by how close this all was for everybody who was still on that panel. For me, these stories and listening to the podcast as a whole, you could see that even Ipperwash, which is before, right? Even if it's our parents or our grandparents that experience things, like we still have that ripple effect, right? Canada is uh, a resource extraction project and it hasn't done a good job of dealing with land rights, but we're still here. Curtis is still here. His kids are here. They live in that community. And so we're not going anywhere. So these things have to be resolved. There's always the potential for another Ipperwash, for another Oka, for another burnt church. And so, yeah, we carry these things forward in a personal way, but we also carry them uh, just as Indigenous people, knowing that that potential, if we assert that that potential is always there. Kara McKenna, thank you for joining us. Uh, you worked with us on Canada Land Back this year. I was so happy to work with you. Yes, it was great. I got to work on the Hacks, Flax and Land Back episode, uh, going into the tangled sort of relationship between journalists and land defenders and police. Uh, you had some clips from that that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, it was hard to choose. As you said, I think, Kim, on Twitter, it's an episode that could really be taught in journalism schools. There's so much there. But I think one particular clip that stands out to me in our episode is Kim Goldberg speaking near the end, where she talks about Gustafson as one of the first, if not the first, exclusion zones for media and the deliberate sort of misinformation campaign on the part of police. I think it was really problematic. And I don't even know how they completely how they managed to get away with that, but it, it probably was one of the first exclusion zones, which have now become a thing. And 
I think the exclusion zone combined with this really overt disinformation campaign, this self-confessed admitted to by the RCMP smear campaign, uh, the two things just resulted in Gustafson not getting proper coverage for the most part and being portrayed in a negative light. They were the Gustafson indigenous people at the standoff were portrayed as armed rebels, radicals, thugs, fringe group, tended to be the language used in talking about them in the media. Kara, now you, you work in D.C., so this is something that I imagine must have been close to, because that's where a lot of the exclusion zones have happened. Yeah, I think for me, it felt really relevant because I can't help but connect it to today and this increasing use of exclusion zones that we've seen. You know, I was a kid when Gustafson Lake was going on, but just being able to kind of use it as a launching point almost and how it's affected land actions today and how that relationship between police and journalists has evolved or not. (laughs) It surprises me that in this country, our journalists can be arrested and that they can be charged and they can be taken to jail in Canada. And we don't think that that happens here, but it does. And it's, you know, it's, it's very deliberate and it depends on what the protest is. I think the police have gotten too comfortable almost. It's like, even in Ferry Creek, do you remember there was that one video where an officer was ordering a journalist to be silent or she would be removed? They're arresting media! Leave the media alone! And she had just asked him a question and they just get so aggressive. And it's like, I think now we're seeing some change with the narwhal and amber bracken suing the rcmp and i think for a long time it was just well journalists and police were kind of hand in hand like almost working together in this weird creepy way i remember a few years ago on burnaby mountain for example there was a bunch of people that were going to cross the injunction line for trans mountain in their construction site and they had made an announcement that they were going to cross this injunction and so a bunch of media showed up and I was one of them and the RCMP had been there pretty much every day but that day they just weren't there and deliberately like turned the blind eye to these people crossing the injunction when they had been arresting you know dozens of people shortly before so it's uh I feel like they kind of deliberately know as well and (laughs) when to stay away and when to come and when eyes are on them and when they're not so it just speaks to that importance of having media there all the time. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen. I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what 
Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. So to start out, Jesse, do you remember when we met? I remember meeting you at a journalism gala. Our first conversation was me apologizing for something or making excuses or somehow. And I remember you laughing at me and kind of miming a person flagellating themselves and, and whipping themselves on the back like, like oh, like I was performing uh, some ritual of, of uh, self-torture and you were just laughing and laughing. That's what I remember. Okay, I don't know why you speak to me. But actually, the, the first time we met, I just realized this. Eight years ago, May 18th, 2015, that's when we met Jesse. That's very specific. The first time we met, you interviewed me at APTN about APTN representation was certainly an issue, but beyond that, the type of representation also turned out to be a problem. 39% of the stories that actually were about Aboriginal people were found to portray them and their issues in a negative light. Well, since Was that the first time we met? Did we not meet at at, at, uh, one of those CJFE type things before that, or did that come afterwards? That came afterwards, but that was the first time, because I had no idea who you were. And then somebody mentioned that you'd broken the Gian Gameshi story. And they told me I should not do this interview with you because you were this media critic. If you want to get me to do something, I guess the best way to get me to do it is to tell me not. So I decided to give you the interview. And I've gone back and I've listened to that interview. And I can hear my polite, I'm meeting this white guy who's asking me questions about Indigenous journalism, and I'm probably never going to see him again, voice. No, I remember that very well. And what I remember is that you gave me the business uh, afterwards because you were expecting a tough accountability interview. And in fact, you were prepared to answer very specific questions about how could somebody who has worked as a PR flack for Indigenous leaders then be in a position of investigating them as an independent journalist and leading a newsroom that has to hold them to account. And isn't that a terrible conflict of interest? And you 
I think, felt like you got off easy, and then you were mad that I didn't ask you tough questions. Why do you think that one narrative of I don't know more being a critique within Aboriginal communities towards you know corrupt leadership was a more attractive narrative in mainstream news than the truth? Was it more attractive, or is it just that they don't understand it? I don't know more had existed for months before the mainstream media picked it up. Um, <laughs> and the, and the conversation that you're remembering it like about. Uh, I mean, mocking you it was, I think, at a, a second time that we met, and you were actually saying that you um, were noticing things in the press, and you're a media critic, and it was about, I, I think, really what you were talking about was systemic racism that you were seeing in the press, that you thought you should be covering, but you weren't sure if it was your story. And what I said is, You've got to get over your white liberal guilt. You cannot keep us out of the stories that you cover because you're afraid you might misstep or because you have white liberal guilt about it. So, you know, this is where a phrase coined by George W. Bush comes in handy, which is uh, you misunderestimated me. Uh, you, <laughs> you attributed my softball interview to like uh, the racism of lower expectations, that I was being nice because I didn't want to be – had you been a white journalist, I would be tough on you, but I didn't want to be seen being mean uh, and doing an oppositional accountability interview to an indigenous journalist. What you failed to consider is that I might have just been unprepared and I didn't know that you'd been a press flack before that. But I do think that you you, you made a very strong point, which uh, later on and, – and it was one that, – that is true, that when critical stories have come up in which – I was cast in that role of holding indigenous power to account or Canada land would be in a position of criticizing uh, whether it's indigenous journalists or indigenous leaders. Um, yeah, there's definitely a kind of hesitancy and a gut check and a fear that we'll just get it wrong because there's a lot of cultural context that um, that we might not appreciate. I think it's fair that you do feel uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable sometimes covering communities that aren't my own and really being worried about if I'm getting it right. But do you ever feel like you got something wrong? Often. And then there are things that I still struggle with. The process of orienting myself in in our coverage of stories that involve Indigenous people or Indigenous issues, like where I found a comfortable spot is exactly as you describe. It's the discourse among white people or non-Indigenous people, but usually white people. That's where I feel the most confidence in speaking up. So when something happens in the media where another white journalist wants to kind of bully into a story and make assertions and apply a standard that would not be applied elsewhere, I feel a lot bolder in taking them on. I feel like, you know, there's, I think, a worthwhile conversation being had about, like, does that have to be the labor of Indigenous journalists every time and the kind of predictable abuse that comes with that. So I think where we're heading and where maybe you were leading me was to my interview with Terry Glavin. I wasn't leading you anywhere. I wanted to know your opinion, not mine. So to really take apart the Terry Glavin interview. You agreed to that. What kind of conversation do you want to have? Because I want to have a conversation about your article. Well, go for it. How many times do you want me to say, come on, Jesse, let's have you. And uh, though you weren't leading me there, yes, you were, do I ever feel like I've done anything wrong? And I think that, um, you know, the right answer and the simple answer and the short answer, 
which I never give, is that um, you were right and others were right. <laughs> and that was ill-advised. But I, I wrestle with that. I think ultimately I stand by what we published because you were very generous at a time when you didn't have to be. And you and Robert Jago spoke to me afterwards, and I think that that context was crucial. It was essential for putting that out as an editorial package. But um, that was a story that ran on the front page of the National Post by Terry Glavin. That story was a lie. That story was a story that took a couple of like kind of procedural errors in how mostly foreign media was reporting on indigenous grave, you know, discoveries or announcements. And somehow extrapolated from that wildly and without basis to suggest that the protests were wrong and also that the protests were all white, which is just factually untrue. What I'm not welcoming of is major national and international news organizations putting words into the mouths of indigenous people, one after the other after the other, right across the country, throughout this craziness, and I'll call it that, this is a a story about white people losing their minds. Did I do a very good job of challenging him? No, I I think I could have done a lot better. But I know that there's more to the argument as to why I shouldn't have done it, which is simply one of harm. To hear these two white guys talk about it and for me to be kind of like maybe, you know, even if I was more equipped, but just like as if this is a debate that that, that is legitimate, um, can harm people. I feel a sense of responsibility and I feel like that is where I, where I factor in imperfectly and, and where, I, where I really beat myself up is like I wish I'd just done a better job of it. I'm going to ask you to talk about Canada Land back. What was the season like for you? Like you literally just handed over control of this to me and Kim. I asked you who's the audience. I've been used to writing for Indigenous audiences and you were like, well, mostly, obviously non-Indigenous. There will be some Indigenous people listening, but mostly on Indigenous, sort of like an under 40 kind of audience. And so I kept that in mind when I was writing it. You know, I like podcasts and I like I like good journalism and I like hearing from people involved directly. I mean, first of all, it is an interesting question of who's this for. I can't think of anything more like if the project is to change the hearts and minds of Canada lands, mostly, you know, settler audience. Like, I don't think that's what journalism is for. I don't think that makes for good or interesting journalism. I actually conversely think that like insular conversations like that actually is exciting to me to hear people talking the way that they talk amongst themselves about things that matter to them is one of the most amazing things that podcasts can do. It can take listeners into places and give you a seat on a couch that you would never otherwise have access to. And that's more interesting to me. So how did you change on land back? What was the, where did you start? Because I I swear to God, Jesse, I remember some conversation with you like years ago where somebody was talking about land back and you said, but that means that nobody in Canada owns the land. And they said, that's right. And you went, Okay, then. And you just changed the conversation. (laughs) I think that Landback similarly provoked a knee-jerk reactionary response within me more than I probably voiced, which is is a similar like – it's actually probably like like a series – like the first thing is protective and defensive. You can't have the Landback. It's my land. (laughs) I don't even care how I got it, you know? Like I'm invested in this system. 
You know, like uh, I got in just before the real estate like went nuts. Like I was like the last working journalist who could buy a house in Toronto. Like that's it. You know, I, I'm not giving it back. It was very necessary for me to hear, yeah, calm the fuck down and make making a joke out of like we're not coming and measuring the drapes. Uh, no, no one is. Uh, I forgot how you put it, Karen, but you were funny. No one is coming for the deed to your house. And in fact, some of the worst things that Canada did to Indigenous people were by the liberals of the time who thought that like, all right, all right, we'll make this right. And each one of those efforts, besides the fact that they were done poorly and done dishonestly and ended up doing all kinds of harm, really what they were trying to do was buttress the status quo and make it okay what was taken and what was done. If we give this little bit back or if we give these rights or if this is done, can we just continue to pillage? And the power dynamics that are baked into that just repeat the cycle and set up the next generation of uh, atrocities, you know. So how the hell do you get out from that? And I think my understanding of the concept is that you actually have to go back to the beginning. You know, and I think this is like a really interesting thing, Jesse, because this is where like amongst our disagreements, like we really have one. I do think that journalism is about changing the hearts and minds of the people. And based on what you just said, I think I win. I want to be really clear here. I I, I don't think that um, journalism doesn't change the hearts and minds of people. What's the fucking point of it? If you end up thinking and feeling exactly as you did at the beginning, what's the point? I just have a problem with journalism that sets out to do that. I think that you get into trouble when you try to change somebody's heart. Jesse, I just wanted to back you up a bit. When you were talking about land back, you were talking about Canada land and giving space to Karen and I to create Canada land back and not being involved, like, you know, just giving us the space and... I think that's all part of land back as well is is people making space, giving space over for us to tell our stories. And you also said that maybe it's not up to Indigenous people to do all of this heavy work all the time. But we're the ones who started off telling our stories in the media and pushing mainstream and non-Indigenous media for space to tell these stories. And and I still think it's up to us as Indigenous people to tell the stories because that's where the truth comes from, right? And by you giving us space to make Canada land back on Canada land, that's part of the reconciliation step. And it's, you know, a microcosm of the entire land back movement. This is our flagship show. This is our biggest audience. And I feel like too often the way that this gets handled in Canadian media is here's the indigenous corner. See, we've created a little corner. And uh, you can tell stories over here in the corner. And it gets branded in a way that like the main audience isn't going to check it out anyhow. So I didn't want to do that. Thank you both for trusting me to do this with us, for us, because that, uh, that, I think that did take some trust.
That's it. We're out of here. Thanks, everyone, for listening this season. And despite what Jesse said, the revolution will be podcast. This season of Canada Land Back was hosted and produced by Karen Pugliese, that's me, and produced by Kim Wheeler. Take us out. Farewell, Davidson. Talking to me, oh, can't you see I'm not listening? The water's for free, but oh, you can be so belittling. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.